Hi there, welcome to How Did I Get There? I'm your host, Sean Penn. So today, talking with Alfredo de Villa, and I'm really excited to talk with him uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, he made nothing like the holidays, which is like my go-to holiday movie. You know, uh, I'm an only child, and my family doesn't necessarily get together all the time for holidays because we tend to be like busy and scattered across um, the country and I guess even uh, the world. And I'm not saying that to brag. That's just a fact. So we don't necessarily get to see each other, which is, I guess, the caveat of that. But uh, when I watch films like his holiday film, Nothing Like the Holidays, it feels like it's like a, a cool exposure, man. It's an exposure to a different culture and really a different world in some ways. But then there's like a similarity too. there's like a point of connection, uh, which I really I can appreciate. Uh, that was a great cast, too. I mean, it's really funny, and it's really well-directed, uh, and there's, like, this cultural undertone. This is a Puerto Rican family in Humboldt Park in Chicago, but the cast is, like, Freddie Rodriguez and Jay Hernandez, uh, Alfred Molina and Deborah Messing, um, and, and several others that just really highlight how um how much of an ensemble it is but then you kind of see the entry point and that was my entry point but then another one is washington heights and i live in washington heights and that's his first film man another great one it's like um that film is like a painting and it's funny because the lead uh one of the leads that you know is played by Manny Perez is um like a, a rising comic book artist. If you watch if you have never been to New York, you would feel like you're living in Washington Heights. Like it's a full immersion type of experience. You see uh you know the lead character's relationships with his significant other which is with his father especially played by Tomas Milian so that was uh that was his first film and Lionsgate bought that one and then uh this was like it felt like um you know when one thing leads to another that's kind of how it felt like uh being exposed and uh immersed into his films like you go with from Washington Heights then he made a film Yellow we talked about that one but and then I said, but, but then I drifted in Manhattan, which is a masterpiece, a masterpiece, man. Uh, Heather and Gra- Heather Graham is the lead in that. Victor Rasuk is in that. Um, he has like another pivotal storyline. And then Dominique Chianezzi. I mean, I, that, and look, I mean, he's, um, he's incredible. I think that all three of their characters have different dynamics, uh, not just with each other, but with their own families and also their own life story. One thing I love about that film too is that it's very centered on film. I mean, it's about a photographer, but like I like seeing lenses, man. I like seeing people talk about like the size of a lens. And I think that's missing in our in our diet, man. We need to have more of that. And then Fugly, uh, I mean, that was the last one that I saw. That's with, you know, that's based on John Leguizamo's, his one-man show. I mean, he's done so many of them, but one of them was The Ghetto Clown. That show really influenced me. I think it came out in 2014, 2013, 2014, something like that. When I saw that show, it was kind of like watching Washington Heights. And then I kind of felt like I was 
in his neighborhood. It's like another fully immersive experience. And then, I mean, in the film, he's with Rada Mitchell and Rosie Perez. Man, you know, great scenes between them. <laughs> like, truly priceless moments. And then I guess like a third point of connection, which I didn't even know, is that uh, is the Colombia thing. All right, so what did we talk about? Talked about growing up in Puebla, Mexico, which is where he lived, where he was born uh, before he came to the States. Talked about uh, sex scenes in film. How does his, what's his approach? He's really good at directing them. So like what is his uh, what are some ingredients of good uh, scenes? sex scenes I mean, he talks a lot about films like i i was interested to hear where his taste kind of developed because it's really unique and like collaborating with all these guys and women uh i mean mulholland drive was a film that he referenced talked about like directing actors that come in with their own sort of process and really the inf- experiences that informed his filmmaking and continue to this one was so much fun um this guy i i respect this guy so i hope you enjoy it and um there's no need to put an end there i hope you enjoy it Things are good. I uh, just a little busy. Today yeah. became a much busier day than I thought. Yeah, is that uh, is that kind of what usually happens? Like you go in with a plan of what your day is going to look like, and then uh, yeah, like a million things kind of jump out at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, today for some reason it was kind of crazy. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about it? No, no. You know, okay. it, n- nothing crazy. Like, okay, like, okay. I like, like, I seen like crazy crazy just crazy in the sense that you know uh we were doing a job in houston and uh you know so we came out of not paying attention uh Mm. um you know not 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 paying attention to the other stuff that you have to leave the office for oh yeah and there's a couple of pending jobs that are threatening to to land or have landed it's just trying to catch up on those jobs. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I appreciate you doing this, uh, you know, in spite no, of your, your busyness. No, uh, so I was, because uh, you're on the, and you're on the West Coast, right? You're in LA? I am, yes. How long have you been there? Oh, let's see. I moved, we moved to LA in 2005, in January, oh, wow. early January. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So it's been like almost 20 years. Yes, yes. My son was born in Miami. So mm. we left, I left New York probably in 03 or 02. Okay. And then our son was born in Miami just in 04 exactly. Oh, wow. Um, And then he didn't even turn a year. I think he turned one here in LA. And now he's 19. Oh, man. He's in college. Okay. <laughs> that I guess that's what happens, right? Uh, Yeah. That's so, what wait. happens. Are you, are you marrying have kids or? Neither. No. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> now, now you, yeah, you go to right. Columbia, Columbia right. University, right? Yeah. I'm what, doing, what are you uh, studying there? I'm doing my doctorate in psychiatry. So we do. Um, oh wow. Yeah. So we. So, so, so we got to talk because I need help. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your characters that I've seen uh, might uh, 
might do with yeah, it. I guess yeah. in uh, I mean the closest thing is like uh, I guess in Fugly, I mean the Rada Mitchell she plays like a therapist, and the Griffin Dunn does too, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So that. All yeah. right. We'll go. We'll talk about that. But no. Yeah. Just, um... John is taking a piss on those two guys. But yeah. <laughs> exactly. Taking Total a piss. piss. I guess. Yeah. No. That's. I guess that's one way to put it. I mean, it seems like. But the thing is, John's character totally gravitates even before she becomes a therapist to Rada's. Right. I mean, she's like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John. You know, John. I don't want to talk about his personal life, but. You know, from what I know, he's been heavily, heavily analyzed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? He still goes to a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or when I was when we were making that film, he was very much so. So, yeah, I think it's it's given him, you know, the tools to like not, not end up dead somewhere in Queens, you know, <laughs> that in art, you yeah. know. I guess that I guess the two maybe inform each other. Like, I mean, pain, how often does pain inform art, right? But um, wait, yeah. so when you're when you're talking about that, when did you when did you meet uh, him? Because he was like really involved with like, I guess the Eric Bogosian, like Spalding Gray, like that whole performance art scene. But he had something really unique, right? So when did you guys meet? Well, professionally, we didn't meet until '08 when we did a mm. film for Overture called Nothing Like the, Holidays. Yeah, but I had been a huge fan of his work in the '90s. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically when did Freak come out? In, Ooh, in I don't Broadway? know. I think uh, I want to say like maybe early two thousands, late nineties ish. Is it that or, late? Or, I don't know. I thought it was more like oh, late nineties. Like yeah, yeah, sure. Well, maybe not mid nineties because Speakerama was late eighties mm. or early nineties, right? That so was his first one. Shows. Yeah. So you kind of you yeah. were into that, and then I, I I actually follow those shows. I really liked it, and then I remember. With a girlfriend that I had. That's why I think it was, I dated this girl for like five years and we yeah. went to see a bunch of Broadway stuff. And one of the ones we got tickets to was free. Mm. And what were your thoughts about that? Well, what was really interesting is if you ever read it or seen it, it's yeah. about essentially like all, all his solo one man shows, the subject matter is John, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and subsequently when I started working with him, I saw his process because Ghetto Clown was the basis yeah. of Fugly, or Fugly came out of Ghetto Clown. Mm-hmm. You know, the way he works is he, it's a little bit like it comes from stand. Yeah. He just writes, writes, tries out that material. So what he does is he actually does a national run through small but important regional theaters. Now, because he is who he is, he commands bigger theaters. Yeah. But if you see those early showings, that, that work is different from the finished work. Mm. But I was kind of aghast and surprised to see how much he is brutal with himself. Like he'll write a, a really funny scene, really funny. Like he gets lots of laughs and the next day he'll be totally transformed. Oh, wow. Because he didn't get the right laughs where he wanted. So that's you like know, and, the, I, and I feel, yeah. I feel that process a little bit like stand-up. A lot of stand-up people yeah. who, who get up every night and try their materials on, on, on audiences. Yeah, I guess it's like... When you're writing... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say, like, that's like the meticulous. You're right. Like, that's the meticulous workshopping, and you see that with so many standups, yes. where they like they go to a club. Maybe there's like I don't know, ten people at eleven o'clock at night on a Wednesday yes. or Thursday, and then they keep doing it and over and over and over. Like, you look at someone like, um, like Pryor. I mean, that's what he did. Yes. 
for months yes. and months and months. And sometimes you go up and you just, you like die, you bomb, but then you yes. just, and you, you like die a slow death. But then in three or four months after just workshopping, it, it seems like the way that he's doing it, John, you do it at a theater for like three or four, or 10,000 people. And it's, I guess the bare bones are there, but you need, right. you need that he, experience. That's right. And when he does those regional theaters, um, you know, like he'll do, the theater in La Jolla at, uh, in, in San Diego, uh, yeah. you, you know, I think that's the theater that is owned by, you, you know, the UC, UC San Diego, right? Oh, yeah. He'll sell out three or four nights and then he's out. Then he'll go to, and to Texas and he'll play it there. And then he'll go to Jackie Gleason Playhouse. But still, yeah. this is like very bare bones. He's still working it out. He's still working out the music. And once he takes it to Broadway, it's like really well worked out. No, on Broadway, yeah. he's not making changes. He is pretty much law. Are you kind of like that? Do you workshop your like this? I mean, you definitely you're at Washington Heights, for example, right? So, like when you were writing that, did you um did you go oh, through that, a process was, where you started like uh, testing stuff? And I mean, that was a while. That ago. was really yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, I have finished school, so that's interesting. So. We had finished school, and I say we because my writing partner, a guy named Nathaniel Moss, Nat Moss, mm. yeah. who's actually from originally from the Houston area in Texas, mm -hmm. but he had gone to Brown on undergrad, and we met at Columbia. That's why I was yeah. interested that you were when I saw your email. I was like, that's where I went to school. Yeah. You know? Um. So I met him there, and you know, it was it was a very different film school that. You know, this was the 90s, probably this was probably like early 90s. Mm -hmm. I want to say 92, 93. I don't remember the exact dates. Yeah. And uh, we couldn't get, uh, you know, I had done a couple of shorts and some of those shorts got attention. And then from those shorts, I got reached out by the Sundance Film Institute. Yeah. So Nat and I, by then, we were starting to write together. Um, mm -hmm. And we wrote a script that did really well in a bunch of uh, screenplays competitions and we submitted that to the Sundance uh, lab and we got in so we went yeah. workshop that script and it was kind of it was called little angel a really yeah. cheesy name Where but uh, yeah but it was kind of like a, a autobiographical right and it was set it was autobiographical but you know I don't know if you dealt with other people who your own cultural baggage into an American audience right oh, and yeah. it's tricky it's not always a one-on-one -on -one um translation and i think that's what happened to us in that script but anyway we couldn't we couldn't get it um produced i mean couldn't even get arrested with it this was the early 90s or mid 90s mm. so the uh independent world in new york wasn't what it became right. but it was still pretty strong you could raise money um and out of that frustration nat and i wrote washington heights by that point i had moved to washington heights the neighborhood because the main oh, yeah. actor of washington heights who's a really really talented dude who who now writes and directs himself yeah uh Matt, manny perez i had done yeah. a short with him in the early 90s in new york um he you know i was tired of living with roommates so he's like yeah come to Washington heights yeah. uh you'll get a really good apartment for peanuts he was right I got my own apartment for like four hundred and sixty dollars, oh, four hundred sixty-six at the time, in a five-floor uh, walk-up on one eighty-nine between Amsterdam and Audubon. Um, oh man, beautiful place. 
Yeah. Love that place. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I always liked that neighborhood because I lived in it and yeah. Manny had spent years and years. So the three of us got together and Manny would supply a lot of the stories and, yeah. and, and, and Nat and I would just kind of write and we would just take characters and just kind of fill them out. And then, I don't know if you remember, but there was a dogma film called Celebration that came out hmm. probably 96 or 97. It's, okay. the, it's, it's the film that really put this amazing director called Thomas Winterberg mm, yeah. on, on the scene, who later went on to do The Haunt. It's an amazing oh, film. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great director, this guy. Yeah. And The Celebration was about... Uh, it took place during a wedding. It took place over a course of a night or two nights. I don't remember exactly the plot of the film, yeah. but it was a a son who came to celebrate the his sister's wedding, but he accuses his father of having raped him and raped all their siblings. Oh wow! And he totally destroys the celebration. <laughs> yeah, it's, not it's an incredible film. It's an amazing film, but like all dogma films, it was shot. You know, it had to be shot with available light. The, even the credits were handwritten. Wow. And it was shot on high-quality video. Yeah. You know, um, which back then, where the video technology wanted, was the Canon XL1. I remember really well. Everybody, because he was the best sensor with Fujinon lenses mm. um, that you could shoot. Your iPhone now shoots better than Canon XL1. <laughs> I mean, technology has totally disrupted filmmaking in general. So, um, but that was like so freeing because you saw a film that uh, that just basically had characters, story, and script, you know, and nothing else, and nothing yeah. else mattered. You were like, you know, totally moved. It was as big as anything done by Spielberg, you know, from a dramatic point of view. Yeah. Without all the pumps and circumstance yeah yeah so that we all came out of that film and said fuck it we can do watch the heights on video fuck the man and fuck yeah. raising a million dollars you know yeah. they can suck our you know what so <laughs> um so literally we just wrote in and manny goes hey i know all these actors yeah really good actors nobody's a name but doesn't matter i was like great let's write towards those actors because he was hanging out it was like the fifth or sixth year of the Labyrinth Theater Company. I don't know if mm. you know that theater company now. No. You know, I think one of the writers wanted to pull it. Wow. But back then, they were all doing their plays, and Manny was part of it. It was Paul Calderon, Phil Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah. David Sayers. David Sayers' uh, wife, Lisa Colon, who's amazing. David Sayers was still a cop at the wow. time. He hadn't quit. He was still part of the doing his 20 years of the uh, New York City police. So wow. he had some fucked up stories. Yeah. Um, so it was a set of amazing actors, talented, mostly ethnic actors. Yuri Reyes was there. Yeah. Um, Gary Perez was there. Marlene uh, did a film with Marlene. Yeah. She was fucking amazing. Uh, you know, it was all this crazy talent that came from theater. So we wrote it. Now, when you said that we workshop it, yeah, we did. So what we would do is Nat and I would write scenes. Yeah. And we would just beat it out. And then at night, because we had our regular jobs, our day jobs, 
we get a buddy of mine own an edit, editing place on 43rd or 44th. Mm-hmm. I want to say between six and seven in New York. Yeah. Anyway, he was not. He's like, yeah, use it. Do whatever you want to do here. Fuck it. Yeah. So we get into his conference room um, and just bring Manny and bring, and bring those actors. And we play out the scenes. And we would then uh, start improvising. Mm. So kind of taking the 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 realities of what yeah. we set out, throwing the scene away and just improvising. And then I had a high eight video camera that I bought to I was at that time kind of shooting this Argentinian trainer yeah. who had spent a lot of time in Mexico. He was training a bunch of kids from the Bronx and Brooklyn yeah. out of box. So he invited me to to hang with him and I was following a couple of his fighters. I just I didn't know what I was shooting back then, but I was just really attracted to that world, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had this video camera and then I would shoot the improvs. Um, wow. And then we'd just play it and transcribe it. And like all improvs, you know, improvs are kind of on structure and loose. Yeah. And that would go in there and collapse them into the scene, right? So take all the fat out and just yeah. put them back into the scene. So we ended up with some pretty good dialogue, you know? Uh, one of Manny's friends or, you know, distant cousins was this writer named Juno Diaz, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the novelist and the short story writer. So he, you know, he was lazy as fuck. That's <laughs> the truth. Yeah. But he's like, oh man, let, let me take a look at your script. And he's like, oh man, this is great. And he would write a couple lines and stuff, mm-hmm. but yeah. really the, the script came out of that. Um, I worked on it as well. Obviously, I was writing. We wrote like probably 27 drafts, but wow. we kept workshopping it and manning. That script without money would have been a very different script. Yeah. Nat and I were doing the writing, and Nat was really more the, the writer, really the motor. He understood dramatic structure really well. He also was a huge fan of Sam Raffleson's screenwriter and mm. Charles Hecht, um, yeah. you know, who later collaborated, I believe, with uh, uh, what's his name? Billy Wilder and all those oh, great wow. films. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so he really put us in in check in terms of dramatic structure. But Manny had this crazy energy. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, his and his acting is so good in that. Uh, I mean, he's so he's, raw. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. you put yeah. him in, and he was in Yellow too, right? He was. At yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. I loved him. He was yeah. great. Uh, but he's much better. That movie sucked, man. Uh, but, uh, but ironically, as much as it sucked, that film was actually a real learning experience from a professional point of view. Um, because I learned really how to tell films or how to tell stories with film in a much more economic way than the Mm. other one. Watch the high just becomes this, like, you got to just puke it out. Right. Yeah. It's just in your bones, everything, Mm -hmm. you know. Or that you want to do, you just throw it in there. It's almost like a hodgepodge of things, yeah. you know. Whereas Yellow's a bit more, uh, you know, thoughtful. Even though the yeah. story is ridiculous, <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. Like the fish you know, out of water. Um, that yeah. The oh man, I don't even know what to tell you about that film. Yeah. That was um, that was a crazy story. So the original script or the story yeah. had been written by the actress uh, Rosalind Sanchez. I said, okay, oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, you know, I've dealt with Manny. I I can take all the craziness and so make it work. 
Yeah. It was a Cinderella story. Yeah. And I I had read it and I was like, this is kind of ridiculous, man. Cinderella, yeah, it's Cinderella, a strip club story. In Puerto Rico. Yeah. You know, she doesn't look like she comes from the Caserios. You know, Caserios mm. are the rougher parts of Puerto oh, Rico. Oh, yeah. yeah. So like, this, this is not right. So, you know, I called Nat and we rewrote it, trying to work with Rosalind. But she, you know, it's funny, she didn't have the energy of money that had she worked with us on it. Mm-hmm. We could have just really like, yeah. Um, no, I was uh, I was just saying like Washington Heights, like another uh, another important actor in that was uh, Cannavale, right? Bobby, uh, I think he shows up on the bike. Oh, in, <laughs> in Washington, Washington Heights. Heights, yeah, he's so great in that. That's such a surprise. I mean, I think that's that was probably one of his earlier jobs, right? Maybe in the city. He's come. I mean, I've never seen him like that. What did you think about that? I mean, his performance, like how, how did you, uh, what did you guys talk about and stuff? Dude, he somehow knew Manny or somebody. Mm. Uh, and he really wanted the character. Yeah. You know, and I was like, you sure you want to play this guy? I mean, you know, he's just a dog. He's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He like essentially chased Manny and I for a while. And then I remember we're at a party and he came up to me and said, Hey dude, are you gonna hire me? I was like, We'd be so lucky to have you. I mean, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it came through. And he just he nailed it. I mean, like all his work, you know, he's I feel like he's the kind of guy who kind of makes a decision about the character and then just starts adding stuff that's yeah. really unexpected that comes from his research or that comes from I don't know what he does, but I can tell you it was fascinating. I want to say that it was a collaboration, but it was really all him. And he was just on fire. You yeah. know, I would just say, hey, I think this is what you got to do. Or not. A scene where he just jumps in with Andrea Navero and Manny was really, uh, you know, where he's eating the rice and beans. Oh, yeah. He was fucking hilarious. And he also improvised some lines. He was great. You know, yeah, I think he's you know, and obviously he's now huge. He's worked with everybody and everybody. Yeah. So no, just uh, you work with so many actors, and each actor. I I mean, I assume like we talked about uh, Bobby's, but each actor has their own process, right? They're coming in with their own like training. Like I just think about like even if you think like that nothing nothing like the holidays. I mean, you got like Alfred Molina and Jay Hernandez and Fred Rodriguez. I mean, all these great, great actors. Elizabeth Pena. So, what what is your uh, what is your approach towards that? Towards like directing actors. I mean, do you um, do you kind of almost let them be laissez faire about it? Like you you read the script, we hired you, you know what to do, or do you kind of try to mold and shape their performance? Look, it depends a lot on um, on the film. Now, nothing like the holidays, I had developed more of a methodology, if you will. So I was a lot more, quote unquote, professional than, than when I was doing Washington Heights. Now, was I better or not? I don't know. Yeah. You know, because there's something about your, the lighting rod catching, like lighting in a, in, in a bottle. So for nothing like the holidays, uh, you know, Freddie was attached to the film. He was one mm-hmm. of the EPs. So in a way, he had to approve me to be hired. 
I knew exactly who he was. And I, and I was a huge fan of his work. So it was kind of a dream come true working with him. I think he's honestly, as, as an ethnic Latino actor, I think he's definitely one of the best, better guys oh, yeah. we have. Yeah. By far. It's just, he hasn't gotten the opportunities of the role yeah. to really shine that through, you know, in the way like thing Michael Pena has. But ha- he Michael was Pena sounds so amazing. Havoc. He was good in, ha- I mean, in Havoc, he's, uh, I thought he was great in that, right? Did you see that? What the, remind me of Havoc? That was like uh, that was like Barbara Copel directed and Anne Hathaway, and that's like East LA and uh, like the yes. gangs. Yeah, yes. he's great. In that, yes, right? he's yeah. a cop, right? No, he's he's the he's the gang member. Yes, yeah, he's like the bad influence on yes. uh, on Anne. Yeah, on yeah. Anne Hathaway, he was yeah. great on that. Yeah, but he also was in a cop movie with uh, the guy from Empire of the Sun. Oh, Christian Bale, yeah. Christian Bell, yeah, yeah, and he's amazing in it. You know, yeah. he's as any as good as Christian Bell. He's an incredible actor. That came through, and then we casted it. Uh, yeah. The first guy we got was Leguizamo. I had to fly to New York to get him to agree. Yeah, uh, Leguizamo is amazing. We went to Jay. I really wanted Jay because originally that character was going to be Puerto Rican, mm. and I was like, you know, Chicago has a really important. Mexican American community it should be Mexican American. Yeah. But I fought for Jay and we got him. And, you know, the producers were happy with him because he, they, they knew he, but he was still young as an actor back then, but he was great. Yeah. Uh, and then the the other comedic foil was, um, you know, Louis. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, and Louis, he was, you know, the producer, Bob, Bob Title, one of the producers who's very funny and very good producer, was friends with Louis. And and he's like, oh, Louis is going to do a, um, you know, he's going to do a cameo as a priest. Mm. And we kept, we kept, you know, yeah. casting and casting for that character that Louis eventually played. And, you know, th- th- there was a couple of name actors who were really good because they're like, oh, we should go white, you know, Caucasian. Okay. Yeah. I was a little bit uncomfortable because he feels like the cliche Caucasian guy, just like you have oh, a cliche yeah. Latino guy. Mm-hmm. I always felt like it should be somebody from the community. I, yeah. So then we started looking for, you know, Latino Americans, if you will. Uh, and I was like, listen, if we got Louis, why can't we just call Louis and get him to do this role? Yeah. And not the priest. And Bob was like, that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so get, we gave him back to Bob. And basically, yeah. originally, we had gone out to Ruben Blake, who is an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. Ruben Blake at the time was the economic deputy or the head of the economy of Panama. Oh, wow. Right? He had a political appointment. Yeah. He wasn't working as much. Uh it wasn't clear that he was going to go back to working, you know, because he was very, very much involved in his political career. I'll show up one day. And one of those engaged. And I think Louis, I mean, he's, uh, he really makes that movie in a lot of ways because he's the one that, yeah. especially like, I think about that scene where um, it's like Freddie, he's, he comes back and he's a veteran in Iraq and he comes back and like, he's on the couch and they're just like shooting the shit. And Louis just says, like, hey, did you see any, like, Black Black Hawk Down type of shit? Like, he just, like, uh, he makes the moment that they can kind of react yeah. to, right? 
Yeah, yeah. He's he's the foil. Yeah, he's very very funny, and he does it with a a tone that's deadpan, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's like why uh, Soderbergh has used him so much too. He shows up a lot with him. Well, he started with Cine Lumet, man. Yeah, Actually, wow. his first job was the Pinedo adaptation called Short Eyes that Robert Young directed back in 75, 76. Amazing mm-hmm. film, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Man. All right. So then that's a good, and that, I love that movie, by the way. Nothing like the holidays. I mean, it's like, um, it's not like other Christmassy movies. And I, I mean, I see them like each year, right? They come up in the rotation and yours is definitely there. And I think part of it, and same with Washington Heights is that you use a lot of music and you kind of create this, um, this atmosphere, whether we're in, you know, New York or whether we're in Chicago and we're seeing, you know, Alfred Molina driving around and, uh, he's going through the neighborhood and everybody knows him and that music is playing and he goes to the bodega and it's that familiarity, right? So did you kind of, uh, did you grow up with that? Did you have yeah. really close with your family and stuff in your neighborhood when you were growing up? No. No? <laughs> no. I grew up in Puebla, Mexico. Yeah. In the, I, I was born in the 70s and grew up in the 80s. And yes, we, I, I should sort of, let me couch that answer. Yeah. I was very close to my extended family. Uh, we would meet every week and have a big meal at our grandmother's. All, all my aunts and uncles and my, uh, you know, cousins. So we were like 25 people sitting at a table. Wow. So in that sense, yes, I understood those dynamics. And I understood the, the, the uncle who kept telling the bad jokes and he had to laugh. I understood the uncle who kept, you know, talking about sex where it was, you know, improper because yeah. we were kids, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I knew the uncle or the aunt who was really fucking serious or very religious. You can tell a joke around that. Yeah. So yes, you, yeah. So I knew, and then it's really important. My grandmother ran the family. It uh-huh. was a very matriarchal society. Yeah. So that's how it worked in in my house. And my mom, uh, my mom was single mom, so she definitely ran at home. Um. So in that sense, yes, those movies reflect that experience. But you know, I grew up in Mexico. Mm-hmm. This is pre-NAFTA, way oh, pre-NAFTA. Wow. Yeah. So so things were very it was like sleepy, sleepy city. It was a it was a big city, but it was like, you know, a million people at the time. Yeah. Uh Sundays everything was closed. You basically mm-hmm. went to church and the movies. That was it. You know? And yeah. all families did the same. You couldn't even hang out with your friends. So what like Saturday you could, but not Sundays. And and everything was around family. Going to your aunts and uncles and your grandmother and all that stuff, and the people you play with constantly were your cousins. So yeah, in that sense, those movies reflect that experience. Yeah. But I did not grow up in the states, so it's a little bit like you bring your own experience and find. I mean, this is all in hindsight. You find what's universal about it uh, and put it into, you know. Uh, in, 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 into the dramatic yeah. sort of piece that you're shooting, you know, and and, and uh, you know the difference between like a movie like Watch Some Heights, where it's you know, I'm in my late twenties making that, yeah. and it's the first film, and you're just going out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And every scene, you're trying to find a different identity. It's almost, like I said, it's like a hodgepodge of a film. Yeah. Because um, you're stealing from everywhere, right? And in Night of the Holidays, I think it's the tone is much more focused. It's much more developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew how to develop that tone, right? Just from, like, learning from master filmmakers like John Bernard or Ernest Lubitsch, yeah. how they create tonality through staging and through how dialogue is delivered, right? Because, you know, it's easy to see a Hitchcock how he trains tonality, right? You watch him if he's an amazing filmmaker, but, right, he's more creating tonality through lighting and through camera, right? But when you have, when you have... Um, tonality. You know, dialogue, right? A very heavily dialogue films, you got to create tone differently. You got to use actors. Mm-hmm. You got to use even the, the speed room, which is delivered. Uh, a master of that layer dialogue is Robert Altman, right? Famous oh, in Nashville. Yeah. Pretty much yeah. even Miller as well, you know? Yeah. Um, Long goodbye, too. So, so that's, that, those, are, those are different ways to create tonality. And I love that. So I learned, you know, and for some reason, I've always been attracted to movies or telling stories that are kind of multi-characters, you know, mm-hmm. even though in both movies, you know, there's always one character's sort of arc that's driving the entire yeah, film. Sure. Yeah. The other characters are important or equally as important, even though they're not carrying the full narrative, you know? Right. I always like that. Um, and I like movies that, that, you know, even like, even a movie like Mulholland Drive, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a masterpiece by David yeah. Lynch that came out yeah. in the early 2000s. Yeah. You know, you have the true line, the mystery of the Naomi Watts and how she's getting oh, yeah. involved in the, you know, the, the Rita character and yeah. the Debbie character that is later played by her. And then you have the cowboy who comes in, you have the directors, and those characters have their own lives. Right. And, and, and the, the, there's a big, huge story that you're not necessarily watching, yeah. but it's definitely... Uh, you know, creating a, uh, you know, a storyline for the main film, it, you know, and in that case, that's a thriller, right? So the way yeah. he creates tonality, his music is very important. Yeah. The audio escape, you know, mm-hmm. it's very important for him. But, it, and, but also if you look at the film in terms of how the film is shot and cover, it seems just very simple in the best possible yeah. way. It's yeah. not belabored, right? You know, yeah. Um, and it's masterful. Oh yeah. So I think sometimes as a filmmaker, if you can uh, keep things simple but not simplified, you know, simple just just in terms yeah. of how you you know staging something so it's not obtuse but it's accessible, right. yeah. and then the ideas kind of just work themselves out that way well i mean speaking yeah. of um like characters that have multi, multi like multi multi-arc films and characters that have their own arc and someone leads you know with their arc like the i guess the story i mean adrift in hands like that because you have i mean you do oh, have, you have yeah yeah <laughs> you got it's a great film yeah. man. you got three you got you know victor rasuk and then uh heather graham I mean, like you have these three characters, Dominic, who's incredible, and they each are their stories offering 
an ingredient that the other story needs to move the narrative forward. I mean, that's how it how it watched. And each character has so much baggage. Like I just think about uh you're there, yeah? Yeah, I'm here. I'm just thinking. I just think about I just think about like um like that scene with Victor and uh his his mom when she's on the couch and then he puts on that uh like that uh that's Marlene. Oh yeah, Forte, right? That's her last name. Marlene Forte. She's amazing. Yeah, I met yeah. in New York with the Labyrinth. Man. Yeah. Oof. Uh yeah, mm-hmm. but you just you think about all that baggage that what informs what informs how you kind of directed that because that's I mean in many ways kind of quieter than nothing like the holidays, right? So how do you how do you think about that? Well, so that film it was interesting because you know Nat Knight wrote it. Uh even though he got solo screenplay credit, we followed the same uh, 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 MO as we did Washington Heights. We started writing and coming up with these characters. Yeah. Um, and that was supposed to be our second film, you know. And then, of course, I got hired to do Yellow, and that became mm-hmm. our second film. But we were always, honestly, I took Yellow because a producer promised to finance a Drift in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we got a Drift in Manhattan done. Of course, Drift in Manhattan, we shot in like 12 or 13 days on Super wow. 16 in New York for mm-hmm. like half a million dollars. It was very, very small. Um, And we were lucky in that the script, you know, I was already represented and it went to a lot of places and and especially was the character ultimately played by Heather Graham. Mm -hmm. A lot of actresses were interested in that character, which was nice. So that, to me, Nat will tell you a different story, but to me, that film came from a book written by a female writer and I gonna don't remember her name. Yeah. It was a female writer or a male. I don't, it's called Olympia, the book. It's okay. a novel. And it's like these three stories that come together. And the, in the original book, um, it's, it takes place. It's called Olympia because it takes place during the 1936 Olympia um, mm. competition in Germany. Wow. You know, um, and it was all these three different characters who tell the different stories of the Olympics back then. Okay. And I was like, holy shit, that's, that's a great idea. I was just yeah. really interested in the narrative approach. Yeah. So I thought, what if the original name of the film, Adrift Manhattan, was the one nine? You as a New Yorker mm. know what that is. Yeah. It, now it's called oh, yeah. the nine, but it yeah. was basically the, you know, it went all the way to down, you right. know, down Manhattan, Wall Street, yeah. all the way to yeah. the Bronx, right? Yeah. yeah. And it was the subway station that I used to take every day to go to work. Mm-hmm. So I lived in Washington Heights. I would go. I, I used to work, you know, on 19th and Park and then that Union Square area. Yeah. So in my, the woman who's my wife now, she lived on Clinton and Delancey. So okay. I lived in that. Yeah. Look, I read Brothers Karamazzo on the New York City subway. <laughs> you know, that's how much time I spent on that fucking line. Yeah. You know? So, um, which by the way, was amazing reading Brothers Karamazzo as you're sitting on the subway, all alienated reading. Oh, it. yeah. 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 So I was telling you basically, it, I, I kind of honestly, the the main there was two like um, inspirations for that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
One was that novel that I told you called Olympia. Yeah. It's a female writer or a male writer, I don't know, uh, about the 1936 Olympics. Pulled from three characters' point of view, which I thought was really interesting. Right. So you have an event that, you know, that happened and told from very three distinct point of views. I was always very, very interested on that. Two is at the time I had been watching they were difficult to get, but the films of Abbas Kiarostami, mm. right? Uh, who who's unfortunately dead now. Um, but you know what I liked about his movies at the time, and then I actually still love them, is that he would create them from very little events. They don't feel constructed. Yeah. Right. They're just little character moments that add up, that add up, and add up, and add up, and add up, and all right. that stuff. So, so it came from those three. From to me, from those two things. And then, you know, Nat brought into it. And then we started thinking about the connecting of those three stories was the, back then, the one in nine, because that was the name of the movie, mm-hmm. was the one in nine line. Yeah. And those three characters would have to meet in that sort of world, right? Which I thought would be interesting in a such a, a personal or impersonal um, city like New York. You know, you yeah. have to have that New York. Yeah. attitude to walk around even though it was really nice underneath but you know outside you gotta be like an asshole or something <laughs> yeah no so, I, I see that yeah i feel yeah. like that mm. yeah. and, and the heathergram yeah story a way to tie him up to the yeah. uh dominic chinese story was basically being a doctor right right um and then she's tied up to victor rasuk story because he's he's a, a very shy man very very shy who might have lots of problems with his mom and yeah. his mom is using him. That came from that. His mom, mm. it was kind of based on his mother's relationship. Wow. He didn't have anything sexually yeah. weird with his mom, yeah. but his mom had divorced his dad and always blame or use him and his siblings as a vehicle to talk bad about his dad. Mm-hmm. So we literally, we took that from his life and put into the Marlene Forte character yeah. with Victor, you know? So, uh, and then we just kind of pushed it from there on, to be honest. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, okay, he's always with his mom. His mom yeah. is very needy. So, you know, late at night, she's sleeping. So yeah. remember, this is pre-internet days. So right. what watching, are you going to do? Uh, yeah. yeah, he's watching a Skinamax film. Yeah, <laughs> Skinamax, which, you know, used to play like yeah. the 80s. They used to play all the soft core stuff, right? And yeah. So, and he uses a camera and he works at a mm-hmm. lab and he can't really express himself there. So, you know, he uses it. That's a little bit, I think a little sometimes on the nose, you know, that he uses yeah. the camera and we're yeah. filmmakers. It's a little bit ridiculous, but, <laughs> but what are you going to do? You're just, you know, yeah. you're just kind of developing these things. I had moved to, to Florida at the time because I got a job in Florida, in Miami specifically. I bought an yeah. apartment in South Beach. That's where my son was born. Right. And um, and Nat and I kept working, uh, you know. Remotely. Just kind of have it remotely. Yeah. Nowadays, nobody cares. Back then, it was yeah. a little bit more disruptive. Um, sure. But we got through it. And we got to a place that I felt the script was pretty good. The character, the Dominic character. Yeah. Uh, that was actually written for Tomas Milian, who I worked mm, with in Washington Heights, right? Washington Heights. Yeah. And then he later came in and did a fogly with me. Mm-hmm. He is, I mean, Dominic is very good in the film. Yeah. But really, that's 
that was written for Tomas Milian. And Tomas Milian, out of all the actors that I've ever worked with, is just on a different level. Mm -hmm. He was a genius, a torture genius. Yeah. But nonetheless, a genius. As I get older, I identify with him more and more. He is he was a very experienced actor. I don't know if you know anything about his life, but mm. he he left Cuba before the revolution. Wow. So he didn't leave because of the revolution, even though his father was a Batista general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was actually one of the bad guys in the revolution, right? The, the reason why Castro and all those guys went against them. Um, but he was a very, very great man. Um, so he came to be an actor. Imagine the son of a general to be an actor. You were basically a patsy. And yeah. in fact, Tomas was a very, led a double life for much of, of his life, especially when he came to the States and then he went to Italy. He was a closeted gay man, mm. you know, very good looking guy. Yeah. He went to the actor studios in the 50s. He started doing off-Broadway plays. And then literally he was discovered by Seferelli and Jean Cocteau wow. in the Lower East Side. And they took him to Spoleto to do where Safari was doing a play for Jean Cocteau. Wow. And that he never came back to the States. And, and basically, you know, he got into this whole, a lot of Italian directors like Visconti, Seferelli, yeah. Yeah. were closeted gay men. You know, they 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 had to hide the gay. Men. This is a very different right. world yeah. Yeah. and generation from from ours, right? Even when I grew up, it was you still had to be closeted if you right. were gay. Not so much, but now like my son, you know, now they have pronouns and stuff. They yeah. it's like sexuality is just another thing. Nobody oh, yeah. really pays much attention to it. So um I'm sure you as psychiatrists yeah. can write a, entire books about that. But uh um he, he was a fascinating guy. So nonetheless, he he you know, he was in Boccaccio 78. He was yeah. the lead in that, the Busconti story. I mean, this is a guy who just shows up to Italy and starts getting these amazing stories. He was also Visconti's lover, you know. Wow. But you, you couldn't tell it at the time. And then he had a kid. He married this beautiful woman. But, of course, he didn't. He loved men. He didn't love women. Yeah. So he had a very difficult relationship with his son. Uh, and then he became this huge, you know, he was in all this spaghetti western, the Sergio Corbucci films. Mm. And in one of them, it was him and Orson Welles. You know? Wow. I, Tomas Millen was amazing. And then most famously, he was the lead in Identification of a Woman, the Antonioni film. With oh, Monica yeah. Lee. And yeah. then he was the father who commits, you know, who rapes his son in La Luna in the Bertolucci film. It's a beautiful film. Oh, you man. haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, and then literally he shows up in um, – uh, that great Soderbergh film, uh, Traffic. He plays yeah. the mean Mexican general. Oh, yeah, That's when yeah. I first saw him, and I realized, who the fuck is that? And my <laughs> casting director in Washington Heights got him for us. And he's yeah. like, look, I know Tomas Milian. He's fucking nuts. So he casted somebody on the back of But he was great. Yeah. And the first thing he tells us in Washington Heights, you know, he plays a character who's a philanderer. Right. And it causes Manny's character to come in because yeah. he's oversold his. He's been very... Um, yeah, very uh, lenient. On discipline. Yeah. Very lenient, right? Yeah. Um, and it's because of his philandering. And the first thing that Tomas tells Nat, Manny, and I, he says, I feel like your character. We call him Tomaso in the film. No, we call mm -hmm. him Eddie. Eddie. He loved him. Yeah. 
Yeah. And he's like, I, I feel like Eddie it really likes men. Yeah. I feel like he really likes men because, you know, we had hired this guy who plays his assistant who's this very good looking. Right. Yeah, yeah. Guy. He's a singer and, and yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, you and, and, and you clearly agree because you put me with him. <laughs> and we're like, I'm like 28 or 29 at the time. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? Manny, who grew up in Rhode Island, he comes from a very mm. poor family in the Dominican Republic. He just, he, I know him really well. He's yeah. looking at me like, I'm going to pull out a machete and fucking cut him in half. That's what he's thinking, right? And I'm yeah. like, oh my God. And I'm cool. I'm playing it cool, you know, yeah. because I was a middle child. If I play okay. it cool, I never get okay. over. Confrontation, like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. My, my DP, who is this amazing Dominican DP, Claudio Chea, I mean, God rest in peace, one of the greatest DPs from the Dominican Republic. And later moved to Miami. He shot a bunch of movies for another great director that just passed away, Liam Chasso. Mm. Um, the Cuban and American director uh, who did uh, the Pinheiro film mm-hmm. and El Super, a 76 film that's Elizabeth Pena's first film incredible wow. film. Um, yeah. so anyway so he he, um, so, you know my DP Chea says mm. he was he was he had Chinese, Black, and Dominican. So wow. we call him El Chino Chea because he looked like <laughs> Confucius, right? And he's like going like, hmm. Mm. Yeah, philosopher That's beer. very yeah. interesting, Tomás. Gotcha, yeah. And, and he's he's like older than we are. So, yeah. you know, that night we're like, dude, are you fucking nuts? The guy like slept with everybody in the neighborhood and now he's saying <laughs> the guy's gay. Yeah. He's like, no, but you know, maybe all those Don Juan guys that I know when I grew up in Dominican, maybe they're all queer. <laughs> oh man he's great in Washington Nights man uh, he's incredible in that oh, so then I the, the lesson I got from that because yeah. then he would challenge me on the set he's like I've right. been in 118 films how many films have you done I, I would at first I was very shy and yeah. then I would, I was like, "Fuck this guy!" I would say, "Tomas, <laughs> I've been in 150 films, minus yours, or whatever." <laughs> you know, I would yeah. yell back at him, and he would just do it. He was incredible, and yeah. he would take my, you know, very sort of stupid directions and turn it into art. You know, he mm-hmm. just knew the character. He's a little bit like, uh, you know, like you ask about Bobby Cannavale. He's one yeah. of those, or Elizabeth Pena, who I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, may God rest, uh, you know, in peace. Yeah. But. You know, they just, they get what's on the page and they just bring so much into it. And often they don't tell you. Mm. And you know what? At first I wanted to know. Yeah. But then I learned that it doesn't matter because it's their process. All that matters is what you see as you're shooting the film. Because you're the first audience, right? Your, Your eyes have to be like a camera. You can't be punked by stuff. Right. You can't be thinking about stuff. Right. You got to just react to what you're seeing. So you have to be very, very present. Yeah. Right. It's like riding a motorcycle. I ride a motorcycle. Mm. Right. The minute you start thinking, oh, I got to call my wife. Oh, you know, I got that Zoom with John. Fuck. Yeah. You're done. Then, then the next thing is you're dead. You're yeah. you're in, a, in an accident, which in a motorcycle can get you killed. Yeah. So you do all these mental exercises to take that shit out and to make sure you're focused on the road and on your surroundings and what that knucklehead ahead of you might yeah. do to kill you, yeah. right? So you have to be super present. It's the same thing as directing. You have to be super present. The camera sees blindly. 
you know, the camera can't see more than what the lens allows it to see. Mm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, 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 and it can only judge, it doesn't judge anything, it can only capture what's in front of it. I think you got to see performances that way. Not like, oh, that was that guy worked with Marlon Brando. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. no, you're yeah. thinking what he's doing to the other person in the scene or to himself. Right. You know, you're judging, you're, you're, I don't want to say judging because it's the wrong uh, word, but you're looking at behavior and reacting to behavior. Oh, just yeah. like the camera is doing. See what I'm saying? So, so that's what I learned from from Tomas. And 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 he would say, "Hey, I think I, sh- I should sing here. I would let him sing." Yeah. And and because there were all these Cuban songs, and he asked us to change the characters. That the guy shouldn't be Dominican because he was written as a Dominican man. Mm. He should be Cuban. And Manny's dad, M- Manny's mom was Dominican, and we met here in New York City, which yeah. was actually very authentic during the Cuban diaspora. Mm. You know, they all mixed all those Caribbean flavors oh, wow. mixed. So I we thought that was an easy fix, and we fixed that in the script. So he could always be himself. He could always use the songs from Cuba, mm-hmm. use expressions from Cuban, which would make Tomas very comfortable in the shoes, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. And he was also, he liked, you know, I always thought he had to have these shiny shoes. This yeah. In Spanish, we call them uh, zapatos de charol. I don't know how to say oh, that yeah. in English, but, yeah. you know, they're just kind of shiny and, when and, he's on the know, wheelchair I, and yeah, he's like on the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And they're like, it's it's that kind of detail. When I grew up, those shoes were really important to older men, right? Yeah. I wouldn't be caught now, I would probably wear one. But back then I would be caught dead wearing those yeah. things. So anyway, so that's that's Tomas. When when we wrote a Drift from Manhattan, we called that character Tommaso because it was mm-hmm. written for Tomas. And in fact, the story that Dominic tells at the table with Elizabeth Pena's wife. I mean, oh, with yeah. the family, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is literally stolen from Tomas. And and he had told me that story many times. When like, I, the father, like the father torturing... Uh, well, he kills himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He kills himself yeah. in front of his son when right. his son was 10 or 11. Yeah. And Tomas hated his father. So yeah. what he did is, when he saw his father killed himself in front of him, what he told me many times is... He actually then went around. They, they had a big property because he was a general. Yeah. And he ran five kilometers. Wow. Because he couldn't feel emotion that the guy had just died. So he had to get himself worked up. And then he went to his mom and said, Daddy shot himself. Oh, my God. See what I'm saying? So, yeah. so you can imagine a psychiatrist that's supremely fucked up. But it's oh, also man, man. supremely interesting. No, and it makes. Also, I mean, the guy like something that like that happens that shouldn't happen to anybody, and you're just in this state of shock, and it's almost right. like your reaction is numb. So you got to work yourself up to even realize what's going on, and then and then call for help and stuff. So that I mean, I see exactly. that exactly. It's crazy. Wow. Exactly, it, it's an amazing moment. So I always thought of that. In in so Tomas came to New York. He wasn't crazy about this script. He's like, this script is bullshit, but if you want me, I'll do it. Yeah. And I'm begging him, I'm begging him. So he shows up. At the time that we're about to shoot, um, his wife, Rita, has a heart attack. Mm. He's like, I got to go, man. Yeah. I got to go. You know? I'm like, no, I understand. Go. Will you be back? And he's like, unlikely. But keep, keep me up. 
Sure enough, um, our casting director, Adrian Stern, had heard about Tomas being very volatile. So he, you know, I called him and, and then Tomas said, no, I can't, I can't do your movie, sorry. I gotta be with Rita. Um, and so Adrian said, look, I have some ideas, but I never wanted to bring them to you because I know you wrote this for Tomas Merian, who's brilliant. Like, okay, what are your ideas? And he said, Dominic Chenez. I, I hadn't, at the time, I hadn't seen The Sopranos. Yeah. I know it was all in the rage. It was in everybody's imagination. Yeah. Of course, my producer loved that because he's like, oh, the guy from The Sopranos is great. Right. And I was like, well, you know, I haven't seen The Sopranos, you know, and back then you had to buy the DVDs and stuff. Yeah. I was like, well, watch this thing. They prepared something for me. I thought Dominic was amazing, but he yeah. plays Uncle Junior, right? who is a psychopath. <laughs> and, and, and here he's playing a sweetheart, the yeah. guy who's like on the verge getting, of blindness. Yeah, on the verge of blindness, who's like, yeah. hey, maybe you want to go out with me to the opera. You know, he's also <laughs> clueless. Yeah, in terms of what makes, you know, he's very formal. Right. So it's funny because I think Dominic really wanted to play that guy mm-hmm. because it was nothing like Uncle Jim. Yeah. Right. And Dominic, you know, he's like, I don't need rehearsal. I'll just show up because he was the last minute. He was three days before we shot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great. And basically, my direction to him is like, look away, take a little pause before you do that. Oh, yeah. You know, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's very simple. Kind yeah. of amazing. You know, he, brilliant actor, very different from Tomas. Tomas would have been a lot more torture, a lot more playful. Mm, yeah. I and Dominic that, yeah. just played it very subdued. innocent. And yeah. Very subdued. And, and, you know, not that one is better than the other one, but the one we shot was Dominic. And I think it works really well for the film. That scene where he finally kisses Elizabeth. Yeah. That literally we shot two takes. Oh my God. Because the DP said, Hey, maybe the first take, I, I'm not sure if it was in focus. So we shot the second, but we use the first take in the film. Wow. Because it was perfect. You know what I mean? It was you, just, almost, you almost don't know if they're gonna, if they're gonna do it. Cause they keep going back and forth. Right. Yeah. Like their mm-hmm. mouths get closer and then further apart and then closer. Yes. And it's like a chicken thing. It's weird. It's a Wild. chicken thing. One is because yeah. Elizabeth, you know, is not sure. Yeah. You know, she's a divorcee. I mean, she's a, sorry, uh, her husband died a couple of years right. ago. But he's not sure either because he doesn't know if he wants to put her through his, uh, he doesn't want her to be a caregiver necessarily. I mean, that has to be exactly. going through his mind. So. It's a, exactly. And that's his conflict. Um yeah, absolutely. Um, that's something in that film, I got to know Elizabeth, who I mm-hmm. had courted forever in other films that never went anywhere. Mm. And then she's the reason, you know, when I originally nothing like the holidays, mm. um, it was a very different actress who had been hired, not mm. by me, by the studio. Yeah. And I was, I don't want to say her name because she's a brilliant actress. Yeah. And she had won an Oscar, mm-hmm. but I had to fire her because she was wrong for the part. Right. And every time she, she came to rehearsals, she was just wrong, wrong, just didn't fit. wrong, mm-hmm. didn't fit. Yeah. Her instincts were wrong. Her assumptions of the character were wrong. She was annoying the shit out of me. And she was annoying yeah. the shit out of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally I go to the producer, Bob, and I said, dude, it's just not going to work. Yeah. We haven't shot anything. We're, Three days to rehearsals, a disaster. Let me go watch. Sure. He comes in the next day. We take lunch because we would do yeah. eight-hour rehearsals. Mm. Oh, wow. He goes, 
hey, kid, you know, Bob had that Chicago, Puerto yeah. Rican, I want to be uh, a gangster yeah. thing. I love Bob yeah. today. Yeah. The kid, mm-hmm. you're not wrong. We have to fire her. And I go, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm really good friends with Bob. But, uh, okay, so this is what I'm going to call Danny. Danny ran the studio, Danny mm-hmm. Rosette. And then he's going to call you, and we got to say the same thing. Great. Yeah. So we prep for it. Sure enough, Danny Rosette goes, mm, 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 okay, okay. Look, this is what we're going to do. I hear you guys. We're going to pay her out. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to call her tonight and let her go. But you're going to have to do that. You're going to have oh, to. Oh, no. I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. Great. So I do that. It was fucking awful. I you bet. know, we all want to avoid conflict. I'm the first one there, but 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 it was the right thing to do. And mm-hmm. he's also saying, like, look, it's not you, it's me. Oh, and, no. and that was an important thing because I feel like, it, you know, I hadn't really wanted to cast her. The, the producers in the studio really wanted sure. her because, yeah. you know, she had won an Oscar. Yeah, strategically, category, they yeah. felt is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I really felt like we had a strategic characters there, like, you know, what's her name? Um Oh, the comedic actress who's in uh, nothing like the holidays. Um, she came. She came from doing a lot of TV. Oh, Deborah Messing, right? Deborah Messing. Yeah. She, you know, she wasn't. She wasn't my first. Or you know, I was like, we found some really good actresses, but they yeah. weren't named. So they, she accepted the role, and I was like, yeah, she's great. I mean, you know, she, she's, she's that's fine. She's, she's. I think the key to that, honestly. Because well, you need, she's great. You need, and you also it. need someone that's outside of the circle, right? Like you, because you, because they shadow water exactly. And that's a lot of the audience that's not that doesn't come from that. Like that's not Puerto Rican needs to have right. that someone that they can relate to that's coming from the outside in, right? And she does. Well, kind of it, do. it, she does that really well, and yeah. she's also very, very precise and very funny. She's yeah. incredible. Yeah. You know, she would do two or three takes and that was it. She's perfect. You know, mm-hmm. she always came super prepared. Um, and, uh, but you know, with, with, with the Elizabeth role, I was oh, like, yeah. well, we don't need two strategic roles. I mean, I'm like, mm. and they're like, well, who do you want? And I'm like, Elizabeth Pena. I told you guys in the prep. Yeah. And she's like, she's too young. And she was, she was like in her 53, 54. Okay. I'm like, yeah, but. It's called makeup. We'll age her. <laughs> yeah. So I called Lisa and say, listen, I'm fighting for you. I I, I want to make sure that you can do this. And she's like, oh, you're fucking nuts. I don't want to do this. <laughs> you fired and, you know, she knew the actress. Order, right? like, that's, yeah. yeah. She's like, you're stupid. You're an idiot. <laughs> don't call me. She hangs up on me. Like a lover, right? Like, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm, I pick up the phone and say, Elizabeth, I want you to do the movie. I'm putting yeah. myself up. You need to come in three days or tomorrow if you can. Yeah. It's like, you're an asshole. I'll be there. <laughs> That's the character, man. That's, That's the, character. the character. That's the matriarch that uh, tells everybody exactly. that she wants a divorce, right? And the calmest right. tone. Yeah. Right. Of course, she shows up. We have no time to rehearse. Mm-hmm. But everybody's going like, you know, John had done a movie with Elizabeth. It's like, oh, she's great. Freddie knew Elizabeth. Oh, she's great. So everybody is like super relaxed. All the cast is like, oh, you bring Elizabeth. Sure enough, we start shooting with her and they're like, she just click. Yeah. And I knew Elizabeth because I had done a film with her. I knew exactly how to work with her. 
Mm-hmm. And something that she always taught me, you know, she would never see her fi- her, her, her her the final films of any mm. film she was in, wow. including Lone Star, which is a masterpiece with yeah. her and Chris Cooper. Um, and she and I never understood. I was you know I was young, so she said, "Look, I made my film during the shooting. Right. I have my story, my mm-hmm. film in my mind." You're making yours, and that's totally cool. But I, you, I will forever be disappointed in your film because it's not my film. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Later on, she started directing, right? And she's like, "I'd rather not put myself in there." And it's not because I'm selfish. I'm just protective. I, I, I knew what the best takes were and what I did. And you, for X, Y, or Z reasons, chose something else. But that's okay. Mm. She, she wasn't saying that accusatory. Right. Yeah. You know. No, that makes. She was just too. saying. Yeah, she was just saying that's my process. It's like coming know? in, coming in with the ex- experience and the like. Uh, you know, like we we're talking about how the audience sometimes comes in with the preconceived notions, but right. you have to have a lens that's clear and in the present. Uh, otherwise, right. things don't don't work. Let me ask you one more thing. So, uh, one thing that I think you're really good at directing um, is sex scenes, and that's oh, God. I mean all throughout that. Really, because Washington Heights yeah. and Yellow. And adrift. I mean, they all have. That's like a big. Fugly. Fugly has like a lot of them. Well, so, but that has the best sex scene ever. <laughs> the one with Rosé Perez and John. Oh yeah. That that he's saying, oh you're, uh, you know, you want to be communist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's like stopping, that, stopping mean to me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. That yeah. was genius from John. The yeah. way he wrote it, when I read it, I was like, this is fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's the best sex scene. I, I, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, I'm not. I don't want anything to do with sex scenes nowadays, mm, especially right. with. Yeah, I just think it's uncomfortable. Why make people? <laughs> I don't want to see two people nude. Yeah, you know, I don't. It's like no. Why? In front of like a whole crew and everybody, all the cast, or, or even like as a movie goer. You know, I oh, watch yeah. films with my kids or with my wife, and we see like a sex scene. We're like, yeah. So we don't have that body anymore. Let's <laughs> let's fast forward. Is, oh man, we're definitely not getting anything out of it. This is just boring. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, there's some scenes where, you know, ultimately, there's some movies where sexuality is inescapable from the narrative, right? Mm. Uh, either shown sexuality, like say, you know. Uh, last tango in Paris, right? Oh yeah. Or implied sexuality, sexuality where they can't consume like right. that one Kai Wai film uh, in the mood for love, mm. right? It, it, but but both are equally sensual, yeah. And it, they exhibit the same tension. One is doing it through alienation, right? Finding later we found out from Maria Schneider that she was. Not coerced, but you know, emotionally kind of pushed into those mm-hmm. situations where she was young. Right. But 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 you know, the outside of those situations, the movie is brilliant. I mean, it, it it's it's a wonderful film, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but it's equally as powerful when it isn't consummated, like in the mood for love. But yeah. the tension, if you think about it. The dramatic tension is very similar. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's kind. Of, it's kind of like when, um, 
when you're when you're with someone that's kind of new that you're attracted to, you don't want to put all your cards on the table immediately, right? Because that makes it kind of right. sterile and boring. You want them to wonder. And this is my uh, I'm not a I'm not good at this, but you want them to wonder <laughs> if if you're into them or not, and you want them to right. kind of be guessing, right? Man, yeah, I I, I think it's definitely that. You know, I've been married officially. 20 years, but I'm with my wow. wife, probably 23. We're on our 24th. Mm. Uh, so it's different, you know. I, like I, you know, I was with my wife before all those apps happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I hate those things. And honestly, and it's, honestly, ever since I've been with her, you know, we're both, essentially, we're, we're just lead a very boring, monogamous life. We don't. Yeah. It's just not in our cards, you know, and it's not that we're perfect, you know, we're yeah, a very, yeah. you know, weird relationship and sometimes it's great and sometimes it is, it's just, you know, it's a very, so I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I'm very comfortable in that kind of world. Yeah. Whereas maybe earlier it was more interesting, like, yeah, what you felt when you were in those situations, you know, and, yeah. and, and how you capture them visually. Um, so maybe that's why today I would just, you know, the best, uh, did you see Top Gun 2, right? It's like, you know, it's Tom Cruise oh, searching yeah, yeah. for the Jennifer yeah. Connolly. And, uh, you know, and the best thing about it is finally he sneaks into her house. They start kissing, dissolve the next day. Mm. The little girl comes in and he has to escape like a little high school boy. <laughs> It was the best choice not to see a man in his 60s and a woman in her late 50s yeah. go at it, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 We can we yeah. have our own imaginations, right? Thank God. <laughs> and I know it's Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly, probably the most beautiful Doesn't matter, man. Doesn't alive. matter. <laughs> Fucking cut. cut. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, man, we talked about a lot of cool things. So yeah. now. Well, what are we going to say about. Yeah. Uh, sex scenes what what about what's interesting to you about sex scenes you were gonna ask something and i i think what's interesting to me is just um well some of them are comedic like the fugly fugly ones are comedic and you talked about that one with john and rosie but there's another one with rosie and that guy and yes. you just see rosie's face yes. <laughs> when like she's caught that one yes. is priceless man it's but priceless it's, yeah it's like i don't know i just Sometimes I think you maybe you need them to show the audience that these people aren't just they're not just um into each other in a like a platonic way. It's kind of right. like sometimes you got to like the character needs to say that oh you're my sister, right? Or you're my brother. So like add a piece of like clarification. So yeah. I think in the sex scenes that you have it definitely drives the story forward. Even that first one, man, with the sneeze. I mean, that's the entire movie. All that yeah. the entire movie is him trying to get that sneeze again, and he can only yes. get it with her. Fucking John, he's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I love I love the sneeze. That's all John. That's all crazy. And John. he's trying to get Rosie to do it. She's like, I'm not gonna fucking sneeze. What are you I talking said, about, you're man? Nuts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it it's great. I, I yeah. I mean, Rosie Perez is a fortunate. She's fucking yeah. nuts, and I mean that in the best possible yeah. way. She's yeah. punk rock. A force mm -hmm. of nature, Mother Teresa, all wrapped into one package. Yeah, nuts and so amazing. I mean, you've done uh, like so many different projects. I know you've done like tons of commercial stuff. 
you have different, yes. different projects in development. So like now, like what's after doing all these films, like what's, what do you want to kind of, is there a specific area of film or uh, that you're trying to like focus more attention on now going, going ahead? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, in terms of films, films are in a really funky state yeah. right now. Yeah. We talked about earlier how when I shot Washington Heights, it was with an egg, Canon XL one. Mm-hmm. Right. This piece of shit video camera, which back then is what we it was all in the rage, right? You can shoot yeah. that and then end up with a 35 millimeter film. Mm. But then I shot most of my films except Fogley on film, you know, mm-hmm. Super 16, Super 35. Yeah. Um and then in Fogley, we went to the red one, which was this, mm. that was a, oh like, really the red one stuff. why yeah red at the time was very very basic oh, it was a very okay. difficult uh, workflow the colorimetry was basically garbage mm. so we had to do a lot of work on color correction ari was much better now red is definitely you know oh, now yeah. the difference between a red a sony uh, and ari are minimal Marginal, you know yeah. minimal they're yeah. all equally great um so, you know, and that has, and I heard it in your podcast too, you know, mm. it's just, it's, it's when you had uh, that great casting director, Abby Kaufman, yeah. right? She, she did all those films and now she's basically primarily working on TV and that's not a bad yeah. thing, right? Because yeah. I feel like that kind of sensibility has gone to TV, you know, movies because of the pandemic, except certainly the pandemic didn't help, Yeah, but you know, it also because of this fucking thing yeah and tiktok i just yeah, i hit all for your shit, audience yeah. the iphone and youtube and all that stuff yeah. you know i remember just as a quick aside so my son is he's now 19 mm-hmm. like he's he just finished his first year at ucla yeah. and uh when he was 14 or 15 i said hey his name is liam the name of my company oh yeah hey liam um, I want to watch, I want to show you, they were playing Pulp Fiction in mm-hmm. Netflix. Yeah. Uh, okay, dad. Okay. Okay. I'll watch. You know, so I play, put it on. I hadn't seen that film since the nineties. I remember mm-hmm. I saw it at the New York Film Festival. Oh, wow. In my mind. And mm-hmm. partially I didn't really understand it back then, but I'm watching it and I'm laughing my ass off. I go, yeah. oh, God, this is fucking brilliant. Yeah. It's hilarious in all the right ways. The characters are idiotic. That stup- they're talking about stupid shit that's hilarious, you know. And I'm just laughing, and yeah. and it's also like incredibly violent. But it's just again talking about tone, right? Mm-hmm. You have this banal language that's really really funny performances that really, um, you know, it's underplayed, right? It's never oh, yeah. pushed. Yeah. And this kind of over the top violence, right? Yeah. All into this package. It's a brilliant film. Yeah. So then my son is like, oh, oh man. Yeah. Right. And at some point, we get to the scene where uh, Sam Jackson says, uh, the one that says motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. With the wallet. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, man. Holy shit. And I go, well, what happened? Dad, that's a famous meme. That's a famous meme. Oh, man. <laughs> How'd you feel about that? Uh, I felt out of touch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this? 
Yeah, no. <laughs> when Quen, movie. when Quen make set out to make that film, I don't think he ever could predict <gasps> that memes would be a thing. <laughs> that that's a famous meme. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was nuts. Um, so I don't know. So you know, I, I love filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I, I love yeah. the genre of films. You know, the the I love telling a story that. You know, because I feel the two, let's call it the two-hour format. It could mm. be an 80-minute film, the 90-minute yeah. film. It could be a three-hour film. doesn't really matter because time is suspended, right? Right. So three-hour films. I just watched the other night, Red, the Warren Betty film. Oh, yeah. I, I've seen it many, film. many times. Yeah, yeah. A great film. Mm-hmm. It was just playing at Criterion. So I'm like, you mm. know, I'm just going to, my wife right now is in Spain with my daughters. So I'm like, I'm just going to watch it. Yeah. And my son was there and he's read a lot about, he's interested in, he's doing climate engineering, but he's interested in policy as well. Oh, yeah. So he he's read a lot about history and I was like, hey, check it out. You know, you heard about John Reed. Oh, you know, man. John Reed, the journalist, wrote a, a book that I love called Insurgent Mexico mm-hmm. when he wrote with Pancho Villa the early days. I think it was oh, 1911 wow. to 13 about yeah. Mexican Revolution. It's a brilliant book of reporting. And a lot of historians refer to that book. And then later on, he wrote, of course, most famously, 10 Days That Shook the World oh, yeah, yeah, about yeah. the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Um, but the movie, it's a brilliant film, right? And he structures it. Th- this guy, Warren Beatty, he's like George Clooney of his time. Yeah. Beautiful man. Big box office draw because of Shampoo and Heaven right. Can Wait. Oh, yeah. Um, and then fucking comes over this obscure story about John Reed and Louise, forget her last name, Louise Bryant. Um, and that's really the, the, the through line of the film. And then he's able to hang on that through line and that very contentious relationship that comes in, out. And it's like, it's like a rubber band, right? It's elastic. <laughs> yeah. But he's able to tell all these momentous world affairs. And then what's brilliant about the film is the interviews. Henry Miller and all the radicals, Americans. Oh, yeah. Uh, or expatriates. Blacklisted. Right? Yeah, yeah. All the black. They're yeah. amazing, right? And they're very genuine. You know, at some point, he has two women with this thick glasses. Louise Bright, you know, they want to say she's a lesbian, but she oh, doesn't okay. say that. Yeah, nobody knew about, you know, <laughs> that she's a loose woman and she would sleep with men. Oh, right? yeah. And then it's like, no, no, that was your sister. No, it wasn't my sister. <laughs> you know, they start fighting in this thing. And, yeah. and he just keeps the camera rolling in this two shot of this. that, And they're going and and it's brilliant because it gives yeah. you a sense of reality. And then you're caught into the reality, right? To the docu-reality, if you will. I, I just think that film is incredible. And, you know, it's a three hour and a half movie. And, you know, I finish and I'm like, holy shit, I didn't. I was just so immersed in the film, yeah. right? Um, that time becomes very uh, relative. Because I can mm. also experience an 80-minute film where I lose interest. Yeah. And then that 80 minutes... Feels like a day, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, you know, I grew up with all my kids going to the Marvel films. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, the, you know, what kind of forever was interesting because it was different. Then every other fucking Marvel film yeah. feels the same. So at some point, I became really cynical. I would get there. I would always choose the cinema that was more comfortable. 
because I would just sleep after the first 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, yeah. And then like half hour, I kind of, sorry, halfway through it, I would wait. Oh yes. I thought exactly it was going to happen. <laughs> and then my kids would wake me up and then I would look at it and say, Oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I thought it was going to be because it doesn't play with your imagination. Oh, you don't want you don't want that, right? I always, I always product. I always try to predict what happens in films, and uh, if it if I'm wrong, then I'm like super happy because that's what's exciting, right? I don't right. want to see like a bunch of notes necessarily that just right. and, linear and, and, everything. It's linear, and it's just a ma- yeah. a piece of manufacture. It's a it's a product. It's yeah. not. A, I don't want to say movies are art. I mean they are, but it's something that has a soul. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I rewatched the Michael Haneke film, uh, Hidden, Caché, and later oh, yeah. he saw the film, The White Ribbon. And oh, the yeah. way he directs, it's all about creating expectations, especially in Hidden. It's a thriller about a very sort of pedestrian shot where it turns out to be they're watching this couple. And oh, it's wow. incredibly tense, but it's a badly framed shot on video. Huh. Right. So he's creating the suspense in your head. And again, you're watching a two minute shot. And at some point you're like, this feels really uncomfortable. But, you mm-hmm. know, you can also go like, oh, this is boring. But it's not boring. It's engaging. Yeah. And it's engaging because there's something going on in your head. He's engaging you as an audience. He's, he's a, a brilliant director because without moving the camera, Without giving you beautiful music, John Williams yeah. like music. Yeah, he is bringing you into this world, and then he's making you a culprit into oh, wow. the thriller of what's going on. And then you're realizing that the main character is lying, and then you get into a whole morality argument of our history and our past and how wow. we cope with it, our denial of that, and that's ultimately what the film's about, right? So. I, I feel like for movies, that's what I love about movies. And that's something that television, as mm-hmm. much as I love television, doesn't do it. You know, television, sometimes the eight or nine hour arc yeah. is a very different to like a two hour arc, you know, where right. you can just sit and not be interrupted and just feel that thing. Whether it's a comedy, whether it's a brilliant movie like Tootsie oh, or yeah. whether it's high drama like uh, the white ribbon right Mm -hmm. about this little town where these kids might be doing all these horrific things to the adults and other kids right for no apparent reason right just because of where things are happening in the town right so i don't know you know i I would love to 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 do i did a short just that because a friend of mine got money from the state of missouri and um, we're finishing just because, you know, I have, I run my own company. So I, I do a lot of corporate work, whether oh, it's commercials. Yeah. I, I've done a lot of documentary work and I've done a lot of TV documentary work as well. I love documentaries. Right. I feel like when I was doing my fiction work, I feel like documentaries have made me um, a much better storyteller mm. because documentaries, you can only get a good scene if it's truthful yeah if it's not exactly. gonna cut it out yeah you know? yeah no so, so if you don't want to have subjects that just want to say something that's outrageous because that kills the whole moment it's got to be authentic it, you can't fake it 
right you can't fake it and the camera yeah. knows it and then you're yeah. sitting in the cutting room and you're like oh that's bullshit you just cut yeah. it out um so so i i love to i love uh as a genre i've always been very interested in suspense and in, in, mm. in quote-unquote thrillers okay. uh because i feel like uh like again going back to Mulholland uh drive yeah. that i mentioned earlier yeah, yeah. that's if you know the film well, yeah. the tension, the, the screenplay is so well constructed and the movie is so well constructed, yeah. right? In terms of all these pieces of the mystery, because that's what really drives you in the film. Mm -hmm. Who is this woman? Why is she contused? Yeah. You know, what's going on around the Betty character who seems to oh, be yeah. like a very sort of clean cut character, right? And all this tension that's piling up, piling up, and he's giving you every scene he's moving it, right? Yeah. And there's this brilliant turnaround where literally Betty turns out to be Diane, and that's the body you see later. I mean, it just yeah. like it, it's a serpent that sort of consumes yeah. itself. Yeah. Um, what does it ultimately mean? It's really up to you as a viewer to find a significance. But uh, it's also incredibly funny, mm, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the scene with the cowboy and uh, Justin <laughs> Thoreau, who plays the director. The sex He's scenes, like, man. The sex scenes. In the sex, oh, in the sex scenes are not. But, but, you know, they're very, that, that's a brilliant. Because, again, it's, it's about Betty and yeah. Rita right. following this beautiful relationship that turns into love. Yeah, yeah. And then the Diane character with that other, the other Rita character played by the same actress that she feels shunned. So you have a love that's coming together and you have a relationship that's coming apart. And, right. You know, Betty orders her murder. Mm -hmm. Right. And then she shoots herself. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy. It's just, if you think about it, it's like high Shakespearean drama, but he has moments like with Coco and the cowboy, I mean, one of my favorite moments is the cowboy with Justin Thoreau. Are you saying yeah. that because that's what you want me to hear? Or have you thought about it? <laughs> no, it's really uncomfortable, but it's hilarious. It's right? comedy, man. Yeah. It's, it's, so I love to like, um, do you like, do you like, do you like noir in general? Love noir. Yeah, yeah. In general. Yeah. Especially when I was, you know, when I was doing those early films, you know, I would say some of my favorite films at the time, and still they are. I know them really well. Is the Asphalt Jungle? I know it's not yeah. technically an art film because it's it's basically a high gone wrong. It's more of about crime, mm. um, and and the killing. The Stanley Kubrick film. Oh yeah, I love yeah. those. And yeah, I you know I've seen a lot of noir in in my time. Noir is funky because you know in the eighties they became. They became this kind of like sexy erotic thrillers, like what we mm -hmm. call them, like Basic Instinct. Basic yeah. Instinct, I mean, the storytelling is amazing. Yeah. But, you know, it's not, it's a B movie, right? It's just, it's just a B movie with A level execution, right? But I think where Noir went and really became something special was in comic books. If you read the mm -hmm. Noir comic books of the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s, they're far more spirit than noir films of that time. 
you know, because they just went for it because nobody bought them. There was no corporate interest. Now, are you talking, of course, are you talking comic, about like, uh, are you talking about the Nolan stuff that, that was I'm talking on? about comic books like, uh, yeah, Frank Miller, oh, you know, yeah. where Sin City, oh, yeah, yeah, his early Batman stuff. Yeah. Or I'm also talking, I don't know if you know this great comic book called A Hundred Bullets uh-uh. by a Chicago write, writer, uh, I forget his name. And mm-hmm. and the guy who does the drawings is an Argentinian guy. Mm-hmm. Eduardo Rizzo is his name. The writer is a wonderful writer. Uh, I don't know if he's done film, but but it's it's an amazing, mm. you know, 12-tone collection or, or arc that's incredible um i'd say more about those than than the chris nolan chris nolan then of course took the frank miller batman mm-hmm. and 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 you know in in uh, in the dark knight is it's an incredible film and he kind of nailed it the, the yeah. politics and the it's a but yeah i mean the dark knight the the frank miller comic book is so Brought with tension and you know oh, unsaid yeah. stuff like great noir films. Sin, I mean, Sin City is basically the comic book in many ways. I mean, you like just from the blood splatter to how uh, granular Incredible. all the details were. That's that's crazy. Yeah, it's Robert Rodriguez's best film by far. It's just it's an incredible piece of film, and yeah. I know he wanted to really capture the the the, the comic book. It's yeah, really good, really good. Yeah. Both are uh, incredible because they both work. The film and, and the comic oh, yeah. books work really well. Uh, the jo- I think the Joker one, too. I mean, I saw that one. That's incredible, too. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's funny, right? Because, you know, uh, Joaquin Phoenix wanted to. Give me one second. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me think about it. So. Joaquin Phoenix didn't want to do Joker for many time, for mm. quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's like, well, just take the Joker thing out and we'll shoot the same story. Yep. It's the director who had to tell him why it was important to keep that Joker. But it is pretty much like a character piece. I mean, it feels heavily influenced by Taxi Driver, right? You exactly. Can't... That's exactly yeah. what it's like. It's like an art film. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even like, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not really big into even Marvel and DC, maybe DC a little bit more, but I mean that uh, I didn't feel like I was watching like a spawn of several sequels. I just thought no. I was watching uh, an art film about a troubled dude, like Travis Bickle, like you said. Yeah. Man. Who, but it's very ballsy that, you know, um, I remember I shot this piece for the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. It was about a crime writer, Peter. He's still there. Mm. I forget. I forget his last name. Really yeah. interesting guy. Mm-hmm. But he always covered crime in the south side of Chicago. So we hang mm-hmm. out with him for a week and shot around him. Oh, wow. And we got these gruesome scenes. And he would always do the graveyard shift. So, you know, it's basically working at night. It was really yeah. intense. Yeah. And he said, look, uh, grief in movies are always bullshit, right? Because it's always grief is such a negative emotion as a human mm. being. Yeah. Right. And I would say the same thing as melatonin illness, right? In movies, you know, I go like this and then, yeah. you know, okay, he's mentally ill. Right. Yeah. But it's, it, you know, in movies, they don't have the conviction to understand that that comes from something else. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Or that that's just, you know, a window like, into something. It's like a manifestation into something deeper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 
So, so mental illness, every time you see a film about mental illness that nails it or grief, yeah. not, not just grief that I'm just sad and moping. And then you cut to me outside in the sunset and looking at the sea. Mm-hmm. And then you cut to a stream close up on a 75 millimeter and I'm looking really intently. Yeah. And then the sun sets. Yeah. And then the next day, hopeful music comes in. So <laughs> you understand in any film, okay, he just lost somebody important to him. Could yeah. be my dog. My wife could be right. something, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you see that it's really hitting me. But grief is such an all-consuming, yeah. especially when we're shooting that documentary. You know, it's just it destroys you. Yeah, you know, in in movies, movie as a genre, just never really Absolutely. learn how to cope with it. Like mm-hmm. fiction. If you read the shipping news, it's all about grief, right? Mm. The unprolled book or, or poetry, yeah. music. Yeah. It's far more interesting on grief than movies. Or I yet haven't seen a movie about grief that's really nailed it. Yeah. There's you like know? I like this uh there's a film Grace is Gone. I don't know if you've seen that. That's no, with uh John Cusack. That one does, I think, a little bit better. Mm. But I see what you're saying. Like when you're grieving, you don't want to feel that pain all the time necessarily and express it to everybody. You're trying to like keep the lid on the pot and try to function, right? So when they play that music and they show those shots, they just want the audience to believe, like you said, like that this person's in pain. But in reality, they're they're trying to get rid of the pain a little bit. We want to feel good, right? Exactly. Indeed. Man. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly much. Yeah, that that's right. So for me, I love to go, I love to find, I want to, you know, I want to, I, I run my own production company. So yeah. what I'm trying to do at a point where I'm at in my life is two things. You know, I have to, I have people on salary. So I have to, I own, I own their allegiance to me and I have to right. pay their salary. So I have to make everything that I make. It has to earn, you know, it has to be profitable Yeah, and I have to keep my staff alive. Right. I work with a certain crew consistently, and I like to keep them employed as much as I can. Uh, and obviously, I need to pay for my kids' college. My son's yeah. in college. My two daughters are going to go to college in the next five, six years. Yeah. Uh, so I, but what's really important to me is to be able to control not only the material, but how the material gets shown. You know, mm. um, because I feel like, for example, in a drift in Manhattan. It's a terrible title, but the distributor changed it, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have enough muscle to make it one in nine because it was really about, I know one in nine means nothing, but for those people who know- If you're in New York, you know what that means. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, in um, in nothing like the holidays, again, the title was Humble Park, like Washington Heights. Well, Oh, wow. I, I get it. You know, it's nothing like the holidays feels like a like Christmas a, Kind movie. of studio. Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, not that it would have changed the success of the film, but, you know, yeah. I feel like also the way when I do corporate work and some of the successful work that I've done on the corporate side, I'm able to win over a client in how we should release this, you know, what mm. I mean? in how we should at least expose it to the market. Because I think that's uh, that's very, very important, yeah. you know, how you release it, what's gets seen. To me, a prime example is Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. I mean, face, let's face it, he's our Stanley Kubrick. 
for sure. He's mm. our generations, my age version of Stanley Curry. The guy is an incredible filmmaker, and he's an all. He's a very full filmmaker. His writing is amazing, and I know yeah. he considers himself primarily a writer, but I think he's much more than that because oh, yeah. he, he's very astute in the way he observes things, what the camera captures. Yeah, he's very. He can work with amazing actors like Joaquin Fix and get a brilliant performance, but he can work with unknowns and get brilliant performance. You know, um, licorice, right? Like, licorice, licorice pizza. pizza. Yeah, brilliant film. It's, yeah, to me. He's made, to me, that's a romantic comedy. It's the only romantic comedy that I've liked in 20 years. I think all Mm -hmm. romantic comedies are essentially unwatchable because it's all bullshit. It's all a formula. Boy meets girls, loses girl, comes back with you. Or make that into an LBGQ TV story. (laughs) Or make it with Latinos or make it with African-American. Same fucking thing. Um, Licorice Pizza is honest, right? It's about two people were very, very mismatched, mm-hmm. but they're perfect for each other. It just feels messy and real. Yeah. It feels like my marriage. You know what I mean? It just it just feels like okay, now Relatable, I, I yeah. so somebody wrote something that feels authentic. Or Phantom Thread, right? Mm. Uh that this guy who's a complete asshole and a complete genius, the only way he can come to terms with somebody with love is by letting go. And mm-hmm. and even if that means accepting the poison of this woman, mm. who's not his intellectually, uh, he's not his intellectual match. He's not his class match. She's a waitress who starts dominating him, who understands yeah. the power dynamic. And you know what? He loves it. Yeah. To me, it's the ultimate romantic film. I mean, it's not about, you know, S and D or anything, but it's just a guy who's able to let go for the first time. And by letting go, he's opens himself up to something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Call it love, call it whatever. But you know that relationship is going to even uh, even like Magnolia, the end of Magnolia, where it's like uh, John C. Riley and Mellor Waters, and you just see Mellor's face when he's like walking yeah. in on her bed. They don't say anything for like two or three minutes and then boom, song plays. But you know, everything in that moment that's unspoken, you know exactly what they're thinking about because that's relatable. Brilliant. Right? Yeah. yeah, relatable. He's he's brilliant. But to me, it's, but also, you know, I like the way how he shoots his films. Yeah. I also like that he heavily edits his movie, you know, very, mm. very much involved. I, by doing documentaries, I started editing a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because in documentaries, uh, good editors are expensive, right? Mm. So you don't bring your editors. The way I work in docs is like I go out, I immerse myself in the subject matter, then I write a script, mm. right? It's oh, not wow. it's not like interior day. It's just it's an outline, but you oh. have to write it. Otherwise, you start. You can't. You discover it, but 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 you also have to kind of pre-plan it, so you okay. know the intention of what you're shooting. Because mm-hmm. that influences where the camera goes. Mm. If you don't understand the intention or have an idea of the intention, the camera is, you know, you end up with theory cam. Oh, you know, yeah. A camera that just captures yeah. everything, yeah. but captures nothing, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen those security cams 
they tell you nothing about oh, yeah. it's just a big wide angle right yeah. um so so once you do that and then obviously things change because you take notes after every scene that you shoot because you know it's changing it's evolving because oh yeah people are people yeah and they don't follow straight dramatic structure <laughs> so uh and then when i edit because i have taken notes I work with an assistant editor and we organize it by scenes and sequences. And I just take away stuff that I know should go to another sequence. I organize it. And then I bring an editor. So the editor, basically a 60, 70 hour film or worth of film, I reduce it to maybe four or five hours and they're already into sequences. So he gets a scene that has 40 minutes of stuff Wow. That or he or she can work with both. Yeah. Uh, they'll collapse it to a three minute scene. Man. But they don't have to sit down through 60 hours of footage. footage. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, the, you, you've already made decisions as the director right. look, this belongs here. And then and then they'll come in and they'll add their point of view and they'll add their, their creativity. And and so to me, you know, the way I approach fiction, it has absolutely when I shoot whether it's a TV or a film. I go in and do exactly that, even if it's fiction. Mm. I don't cut it because I don't want to cut it. I mean, I, I know how to edit physically, right? But I want an editor to come in and collaborate with me mm. and help me put the best version of the scene or oh, the sequence yeah. or the film. But 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 again, we tend to cut a lot faster because I'm able to make choices. Right. You Man, know? so you got to come in with some plan, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Man. Uh, this was great. I really enjoyed this. We had so many, we had so many hiccups technically, uh, <laughs> mostly cause of me. So I apologize for that, but, uh, man, this was really fun. And, um, you know, all your work, man, Washington Heights, I actually live in Washington Heights. Uh, no way. yeah, yeah. That's where, uh, that's where I, that's where the Columbia like med center and New York Presbyterian right, is. Right. On 168. Exactly. I you know, there. I worked for 168. I, I was working mm. for uh what's his name german couple that had been forever uh divorced Uh in the 90s who was doing a sexual study on uh sexual ambiguous diseases meaning it was a lot of dominicans i was the translator for them wow and they would bring people who had grown up to be a woman but on their knee they had a vagina and a penis and not a fully developed penis and they're like i'm not a woman i want to be a man right so they were with their significant other. They were now in their 30s or 40s. Man. And all, you know, they couldn't be intimate because they were afraid of showing their vagina because they had it. So anyway, wow. I worked there for two years. Wild. Um, it was fucking brutal. Man. Just the kind of shit I heard. I was like, you know, I was like. Where's that film, man? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. Anyway, but I love Presbyterian. That was that. It was crazy. The kind of shit you would. This whole sexuality, I don't know, it was fascinating to me because I'd be there with the patients and translating yeah. to them at Oof. the same time. So you would see also the expre- incredibly hard ex- expressions of these people yeah. trying to tell the story. Man. You know? And it wasn't like, okay, so you don't have a fully developed penis and you have a vagina. I mean, to me, nowadays, it's like there's bigger problems in the world. But it's yeah. also huge for your identity. It's a huge issue. Massive, man. Massive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 
that's the whole everything man you're translating this outwardly they're like having this internal dialogue where they have to translate stuff to themselves about their identity oh, and then man. to their partner what a it's what crazy. a weird sordid world all right man but um yeah so all the films and especially the casting choices and the directing incredible and like i think your voice is so original and um you know really love i've learned so much about um latino culture honestly from your from some oh, of your films and about uh puerto rican culture from you know especially the holiday movies so thanks for all your work man thanks for bearing with all these technical difficulties uh really appreciate talking to you it was awesome thank you john last question for you yeah. how did you find me it's not uh, like um you know robert rodriguez or alfonso Cuaron. no 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 i think honestly it was um you know what it is i so i uh my family doesn't really get together a lot because i think we're we say we're all spread out but i think it's just we don't our priorities we just don't make time for uh meeting up on the holidays and stuff right. so i think it was actually the holiday movie uh mm. seeing that and then seeing Elizabeth and then seeing um seeing her in a drift i think i kind of got this like i didn't necessarily know what i was going to be exposed to from your other work after seeing the holiday movie but i just the casting choices in that were just so specific like just looking at Elizabeth and Jay and Alfred Molina who i love and then so like i saw that and oh, then it's great yeah a great a great incredible and then um seeing heather graham in that movie the drift and then all the other ones and then that brought me to washington heights so i thought it'd be interesting to talk to you because i'm living in washington heights and it's like that's the full circle arc so that yeah. that's why i uh why i reached out that's cool thank you for telling me that story yeah. well i'm honored thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>